Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Michael Nesbitt, Assistant Professor of Law at the University of Calgary Faculty of Law. We will discuss his article, An Empirical Study of Terrorism Charges and Terrorism Trials in Canada between September 2001 and September 2018, which is forthcoming in the Criminal Law Quarterly. So welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you so much for having me, Brian. So this is a, a really interesting paper and one that's very much outside of my area of expertise, not only because I don't really know much about terrorism prosecutions in general, but especially um, about what the law and sort of law enforcement in that area has has looked like in in Canada. So I wonder if you could start by just talking about sort of terrorism prosecutions in in Canada during that period. Sort of how many people or how many charges were f- filed? How many trials were held in in Canada during that period? And sort of what were they for? What kinds of things were people being prosecuted for? Yeah, it's a great question. And if you don't mind, I'll just give a quick update for the American audience, because I'm sure they'll, they'll think of September 11th, 2001 as the starting date for this, of course, uh, make the parallel to draw the parallel to the September 11th attacks. And, and of course, that's a big part of the story. But the reason it's a big part of the story in Canada is because we didn't really have terrorism offenses in we have a federal criminal code so we don't we don't have it state by state for you guys or province by province for us so we didn't really have terrorism charges at least as we see them now in our criminal code so that those really came into being shortly after and because of the september 11th terrorist attacks so that was the reason for the starting date and so when we're talking about the number of terrorism charges and trials since September 11, 2001, we're really talking in the history of Canada. Mm-hmm. Now, we've had other things we might quantify as terrorism in the past, but those offenses were usually charged, some would be charged in what the famous Air India bombing uh, from 1985 is probably the largest terrorist attack involving Canadians at 329 killed, I believe. But the individuals were charged with murder in that case, not terrorism. So that, that's really the reason for starting there. And so when I say, so I'm going to say there's been now, there's 54 at the time of the study, and we've had one more charge and the start of a prosecution since. So we're up to 55 terrorism charges in Canada. And that's since September 11th, uh, 2001, but it's also ever. Mm. And the charges we've had so far, and, and this includes the, the more recent one, which was last fall, so after the end date, artificial end date of this paper, uh, almost all of them, in fact, all of them except for one were for what I would call, just for simplicity's sake, Islamist or jihadi inspired terrorism. Mm. And so we've only had one terrorist offense that was not, wouldn't fall into that category. And it was a individual who was sending financing back home to Sri Lanka. And he was associated with the LTTE, the, the Tamil Tigers. Mm. And that's of interest, one, because this is, you know, a reflection of what's happening in the world. But it's also of interest in Canada because we're seeing a lot of the same things that that probably at a smaller scale, but a lot of the same things that we see happening in the U.S. So what immediately jumps off the page here and might to your audience as well is the lack of what we might call far right extremist prosecutions under the label of terrorism. 
Right, right. So when Canada created the first terrorism charges in in 2001, um, what kinds of potential charges did it create? In other words, like what were the options for Canadian prosecutors or whatever they're called in Canada for pursuing terrorism charges qua terrorism? Right. So what we usually do for this kind of, you know, Canada is lovely in some ways in how it approaches many of these criminal charges. So what we don't sometimes do well, I'm going to generalize a little bit here, but what, what I'll say we don't sometimes do well is be tremendously proactive. So it takes something like September 11th, a real tragedy like that to happen before we have terrorism offenses at all. Now, the good side of that approach, that's what I call the Canadian approach, is when we finally do get around to instituting offenses or thinking about what offenses we could have or how to charge them, how to prosecute them, what's fair, uh, what will protect rights while also ensuring security and prosecution. Usually we're, we have sort of a last mover's advantage, which in business is a bad thing, but in law is a very good thing sometimes. <laughs> and so what we did was we, we looked to the US, we looked to Australia, we looked to the UK. And we got, and we did, of course, we tailor it for, for Canada, for our Charter of Rights and Freedoms, uh, for the particular landscape that exists here. But we draw on what's happening elsewhere. And so what we drew, what we found was one, we were being criticized and continue to be criticized for not prosecuting, not just terrorist financing, but money laundering and some other money related offenses. So the first thing, the first charges or offenses we have are related to terrorist financing. And then the way we've set it up is we have participation in a terrorist group, although not being, that is not to say being a member of a terrorist group. So you can be a member, but you can't participate. And the distinction is the participation requires some active involvement uh, that forwards the agenda of the group. Uh, We have facilitating a terrorist activity. We have commission of a terrorist offense. So this is this, most of them were preemptive. Uh, this is the one that's maybe the one that's sort of not preemptive is, is the commission of a terrorist offense for uh, um, uh, the commission of indictable offense for a terrorist purpose. And then a couple other small ones that haven't been uh, a speech offense, which has never been used and a couple other lesser offenses that are are not used as often. But in general, if I was to give an overview of it, what I would say was the real reason we we needed and wanted at the time this new regime for terrorist offenses was we recognized after September 11th that part of the problem here was, look, it's not, we, we could charge people with murder if they go out and kill people. But that's not what we want to do because that requires us to act after people have been murdered, which obviously is not what we want, right? So mm-hmm. we set up a regime that primarily targets preemptive preemptively so um we sometimes say left of bang so Mm. before things go off so try to get at people while they're still plotting while they're still participating in the group but haven't committed the attack while they're trying to facilitate an offense or finance an offense that hasn't yet happened and so most of these offenses try to get at that left of bang activity so that we can criminalize and disrupt the activity before it actually takes place and harms anyone. Cool. Yeah. And, and so in your paper, you present what you characterize as an empirical study in which you gather really, as far as I can tell, all of the kind of quantifiable uh, data about 
the different offenses that have been filed. Um, why did you initially think when you started the project that an empirical study of the terrorism offenses would be helpful? And what ultimately kind of did you see revealed by looking at the kind of landscape of terrorism prosecution in that way, kind of through the lens of sort of the aggregate data about the prosecutions? Yeah, let me start with a bit of a mea culpa here, which is that I know your listeners won't all be lawyers or certainly won't all be public lawyers. So what I'll say is for those listeners, particularly anyone who deals in the social sciences more broadly and does quantitative studies, for example, empirical, this is really, I'm using the term empirical because in public law counting counts as empirical sometimes, at least in Canada. <laughs> and, and that's that's really I'm not going too far beyond, you know, there's, there's no linear regression models run or anything like that. But so, so really what, what the starting point was, was trying to get a sense of the landscape in Canada. And this was for two reasons. One was we had, we had had a, almost all our charges have been in the last 10 years. So I figured before things really take off, perhaps if we see, foreign fighters coming back from Syria, it would be good to get a sense of what cases are out there, what's happened so far, how this legislation, which was brand new, is now being interpreted. We also, we, we the government follows this, but they don't release it publicly. So we do have a report each year, which lists the total number of charges to date, but it doesn't give you any details about them. It doesn't give you what cases they were, what they were charged with, how many charges per individual, whether they were pulled or stayed or went ahead, how many have gone to trial versus guilty pleas. All that sort of information is just not publicly available. And so I thought, well, not just for me, but for anyone studying this, and I know a lot of people when you do national security who are not in, in law at all, could really benefit from a lawyer collecting that sort of information and giving it to them. And then they can do something really interesting mm. with it. So it's actually a big part of it for me was sort of getting a handle on the landscape and then hoping that others would come forward and do the really interesting work. Uh, that was obviously compounded by the fact that transparency hasn't been great in this area. And so we just didn't have a lot of this information. And, and the, really the selfish reason was I was getting a lot of media reports about you know, how many Syrian travelers have there been from Canada? How many have come back? How many have been prosecuted? Is this the first time we've prosecuted someone for actually committing an indictable offense for the benefit of a terrorist group, et cetera, et cetera? And I thought it would be awfully nice if I could just refer them to one yeah. paper or at least refer myself to a paper to help answer the question. So it's a little bit selfish, but I also thought of it as a, a bit of a social good in that regard and that I can, I can help make sure that any media attention on this topic, which can be controversial, is at least informed from the outset by what's actually mm. happened in Canada. Mm -hmm. And, and so when you, when you compiled this data, which, you know, was really fascinating to me because it did seem to, you know, even someone from the outside to sort of show some really interesting trends and reflect mm. kind of clustering of different approaches that the authorities were taking. So sort of what jumped out at you initially after you put the data together? Oh gosh. There were a lot of things that I was looking for initially that I thought might jump out, but I wasn't sure. So one of them was, and this is getting a little bit technical, so I won't get into the details, but the way our courts have interpreted, at least how I've interpreted, how the courts have interpreted our participation in our facilitation offense, leaves 
there's not a hard line between those two offenses. And so it was one of the things I wanted to see was, well, how, how are they even, if, I, if, I, if I'm studying this stuff for, you know, my life, but two years really in detail, and I can't really tell you the difference between why you charge one and not the other in a particular case. And I could at a very broad level theoretically, but it doesn't really, it sort of breaks down in practice. Mm. One of the things I wanted to look at was, was why are we charging one and not the other? When are we charging together? Why, how are you being convicted from one and not the other? That sort of detail. And, and I sort of thought if I was a prosecutor and there seems to be a lot of overlap and the courts don't seem to worry about the overlap and, and seem to be willing to convict on, on both charges, why not charge both all the time? So mm. I assumed I'd see a clustering of those two charges and also you can imagine if someone's facilitating a terrorist defense, usually they're think of themselves as part of ISIS or they're part of a small group or whatever the case mm. might be, which, which of course is then going to be participation. Um, but we didn't see that in this case. So I, I, that's one of the areas where I'm, I'm fascinated to see if someone can come up with a good explanation as to why this, I mean, maybe there is no good explanation. Uh, mm. maybe, maybe this is something we're still working through. Uh, some of the other things we noticed, I of course look at things like gender. So, when you look at the terrorism offenses in Canada, they're almost all men. That's a little bit surprising to me. One, because about 30%, and I think the numbers aren't too far off in the U.S., 30% of offenses in general are committed by women. So if I was to guess without any further information and someone said you know, how many people of a particular type of offense are women and how many are men, I would guess about 30% are women. We're seeing under 10% around mm. 10%. They say, well, you know, maybe maybe terrorism is different. But if you look at the international numbers, the estimates are around 25% female. <clears throat> so then the question becomes, well, why is it different for Canada? And, and I can't tell you why. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't come out. So there's you know, you could come up with a number of hypotheses here. It could be, it could be the landscape is different in Canada. It could be that terrorism is a very serious offense and the number, the, the gender numbers look an awful lot like the most serious offenses in Canada. So if you mm. compared them just to murder and sexual assault, for example, the numbers would look pretty similar in that regard. Mm. So maybe this is just an offense that's of serious violence that looks a lot like those other offenses. It, it might also be the case. And this is something that I think a lot of us who are following this probably, probably not just in Canada, but elsewhere are a little worried about, which is stereotyping. So this comes up when we talk in national security and terrorism about these individuals who have traveled from the U S and from Canada and from Britain and from elsewhere and gone to fight in Syria for ISIS. And so the question for all these nations is, what the heck are we going to do with these people? Do we bring them back if they're in Kurdish custody? Maybe we just leave them in Kurdish custody. Do we bring them back here? Do we, if we bring them back, do we prosecute them? Uh, what happens with the women who went abroad with men and had babies abroad? What do we do with the kids? What do we do with the parents? You know, Do you bring them back and immediately put both parents in jail and put the put the child into, into the system or something. So, um, and what we're seeing at least in Canada, and, and I think this is true in Britain, although someone can correct me, is the individuals who are coming back are sort of, are often denying their role, right? So you come back and you say, yeah, yeah, but I was just, you know, I was part of the group, but I didn't really do anything really bad. And for a lot of the 
women, in, at least in, in Canada, who are coming back, they say, yeah, yeah, but I just went there to follow my husband or something. Mm. Like that. Well, we know that's not entirely true. We have, we don't have stats on what everyone's doing. We don't know what everyone's doing, which is part of the problem. But we certainly do know that you know, any group of individuals that go over, some are going over on their own accord. Uh, just like some men are probably being pressured to go over. Some are participating in fighting. Some aren't. And so one of the things that I think I hope at least we're keeping an eye on is that we don't start stereotyping and that stereotypes aren't driving these. So in other words, we're not, we have a low prosecution count against women because we're assuming that women don't have a propensity for violence or aren't committing the violence attacks or aren't um, seriously involved in the plotting abroad or, or what we might consider the offenses that we take each analysis case by case. Mm. Uh, another thing that, that jumps out, obviously, which I've mentioned already was, look, I knew that most of these charges would be jihadist inspired. I didn't imagine that you'd have 54 of the 55 would be jihadist inspired and the other would come from uh, a very minor offense of terrorist financing in, in Sri Lanka. And that was sort of your lowest punishment and all that sort of stuff. And, and the reason that looks a little odd is we've had the same problems as the U.S., though on a lower scale with this far-right extremism. So we had a Alexandre Bork last year went into a mosque and killed six people and was arrested. And he was charged with murder of six people. And so the question immediately became, and I think understandably so, why, why wouldn't that be terrorism? Mm. went in, he said he was doing it because he was anti-immigration, anti-refugee. He felt like he had to act. He was pretty clear. He was on a number of Reddit pages and, and other online forums where he was spouting rhetoric, which looks an awful lot like what some people are starting to call the, the transnational white supremacist movement rhetoric. Um, mm. So, so why are we seeing a couple of cases like that? And that's not the first one. There's another person in Nova Scotia, I think it was Nova Scotia, who killed four RCMP, that's our National Police Force, uh, officers. Um, so the question is why we're not seeing more of those charges. And then I guess the follow-up question would be, if most of these charges are preemptive, which has turned out to be the case, which isn't surprising because that was the intention behind creating the offensive in the first place, why do we have no preemptive action against far-right and right. again, you, you don't want to assume an answer. It could just be you know, unlucky. Um, it's been a short period of time. Uh, we just haven't caught anything. It could also be resourcing. It could be systemic. Uh, it could be we're not charging the right thing. Uh, mm. so who knows? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, given your description of the reason for adopting the terrorism charges in the first place, you know, kind of, as you said, looking to the left of the offense, as it mm -hmm. were. I mean, it at least suggests the possibility that there's kind of under investigation of certain kinds of what would probably be char characterized as terrorist activity, like maybe an over, like a focus on Islamist or jihadist inspired potential terrorism, but not on non-Islamist or jihadist inspired potential terrorism. Yeah. And this is again, where, you know, I can't say that for sure. And I try not to assume the worst about people, but the other side of that is I, the numbers are pretty stark at this point. So 
I'm asking about it now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. our authorities, and mm-hmm. I think our authorities should be asking the same thing. Mm-hmm. It could be it could be blatant bias. It could be something systemic. So we we know, for example, we have language that, you know from the mid aughts saying we took a bunch of money from the RCMP and moved it from hate crimes and other organized crime investigations and over to terrorism. And the question is, okay, if you moved it over to terrorism, did you have something specific in mind? My guess is consciously or unconsciously, you probably had September 11th in the back of your mind. So it's something particular that you were looking at. And, and then the question is, is that, is that really, does that tunnel vision? In other words, mm. Yeah, mm. Is, is that what been drawing it? And of course that's, that very bad from a number of perspectives, right? It means you're discriminating against a particular community. Um, it means you're not doing your job effectively. It's not good for national security either, because it means you're, you've got a huge blind spot to what appears to be a fairly serious threat across North America and the West. Mm-hmm. So when you looked at the data um, kind of in the aggregate, did, did, did the offenses charged tend to be like individual offenses or did you see like kind of group expenses uh, uh, offenses almost like like conspiracies of some kind or was it like a mix of of the two what was sort of the breakdown of the nature of the underlying crimes yeah this is this is another thing and i'd have to go i'd have to go back to the to the numbers in detail here, because I, I think you're getting at something which I think is really interesting, which is most of most of the offenses were individual offenses, but they were individual offenses for participating as a member of a group. So almost mm. a third of our offenses came from a plot that is become colloquially known as the Toronto 18 uh, group. And so it's sort of a funny name, the Toronto 18. 18 people were originally charged. Uh, they stayed immediately, almost immediately stayed charges against seven of them. I think it was mostly or all youth, which left only 11. And there were actually about, I think about 40 sort of peripherally involved. But in, in any event, we call it the Toronto 18. But that makes up, you know, if, if you say there's 55 total, there's, well, 18 of them were from that one plot. Uh, we have what we call the Via Rail plot, which is another three or so. Uh, so most of the offenses seem to come from small groupings of individuals. So that's interesting to me for two reasons. One is if they're, they're not being charged in Canada necessarily for the participation in a group and that group is ISIS. They're being charged with participation in the group and that group is whatever that small group that they've just formed, which might be sympathetic to ISIS or some other group uh, might be easier to name them, label them a terrorist group because they, they seem to be unofficially affiliated with these other groups. But really what we're looking at is small groups of mostly men. So again, that's interesting for, to me for two reasons. One is we don't have a whole bunch of people who are, and I guess this is just the, the way the recruitment goes internationally, but who are card carrying members of what you would think of as an international terrorist group. And the other side of that is we don't have many lone wolves. And so if you're getting back to the Bissonnette case, the individual who I just spoke about, who I just spoke, who, who walked into the mosque and, and killed six individuals, um, it, it seems to be that we're going after groups rather than your lone wolf. And I wonder mm-hmm. if that portends a potential future legal or investigative problem with respect to lone wolves as terrorists. Mm, mm, mm. Well, you know, one thing, or kind of 
from an American perspective, mm-hmm. looking at the data that you provided, a couple things jumped out at me. I mean, one was the number, the relatively high number of acquittals in some of these cases. Yeah. And the other was the relatively high number of people who chose to go to trial rather than accepting a plea bargain. And now I don't know the extent to which that would also be the case in the United States. Like, I mean, it's not my area, but I do know that from a broader kind of criminal law perspective, going to trial is the very much the exception to the rule of taking a plea bargain. So like both of those were, were kind of surprising to me. Are those, are, are the numbers more consistent with what's typical in Canada? And if not, like, what do you think might explain it? So, yeah, I think I think there is an explanation here. So why don't I start with the, what I'll call the first of those two, which is why are so many of these going to trial? And and you're right, the, the, the numbers are, I don't want to say exactly the same in Canada, but for all intents and purposes, they're the same in Canada. So, you know, most cases never make it to trial in Canada, as is the case in the U.S., for whatever reason. And so you see, you see that breakdown again um, with certain offenses. So in Canada, we have mandatory minimum sentences for certain things. And so the incentive to plea bargain in those crimes, murder being the prime example is limited. And so we don't see as many plea bargains in murder. Uh, Sexual assault, I think is another example and terrorism appears to be another example. Now, terrorism, we don't have these mandatory minimums, so you don't have that same obvious explanation there. What I think might be part of the explanation is, well, I think there, there's three that come to mind, and I'm completely open-minded to someone else saying, no, it's actually mostly the result of something else, or there's something I'm not thinking of. But the, the ones that come to mind for me are, first of all, these are fairly new offenses that haven't been tried out. So we don't know how they're going to be ruled upon or even if they're necessarily constitutional, at least at the beginning. So you may as well take it to trial and try your hand at getting the charges overturned or hopefully someone made a mistake along the way or whatever the case might be. So I'm guessing they're sort of take a sh- shot in the dark at in some cases. Another thing that seems to be happening is, and I'm not sure if this is driving decision, but I'm worried it's going to drive decisions, which is that when we get to sentencing, you're seeing about the same sentence for those who plead guilty and those who don't. And if that's true, then you don't have much incentive to plead guilty. And if you don't have much incentive to plead guilty, you may as well take it to trial and fight the charge. Why not? I'm getting the same outcome either way, right? So mm. I wonder whether this tendency to treat terror, it's a sort of an impulse to treat, of course, you're going to treat terrorism seriously. Of course, you're going to give them harsh sentences. The other side of that, and we've seen this in other contexts, is if you treat them all harshly in the same, then there just isn't this incentive to plead out in some way, which means it's more expensive for the system, which means it takes up more court time, which means you risk a not guilty finding, which means all sorts of other stuff. So uh, I, I do wonder a little bit whether that, if even if it wasn't initially driving things, if that started to drive things. And the final one is terrorism is about as complicated a offense to make out, I would guess anywhere. And so I'll just, I'll just use the Canadian example because that's what we're talking about to explain it. So 
one, it's difficult because it's preemptive, right? So it's not saying we have forensic evidence to suggest you did it. We have the blood splatter and we have the murder weapon and we have your DNA on the weapon and this sort of thing, right? It's you were planning to do something and we think you were going to sort of go ahead with it. And we're going to need wiretaps and we're going to need maybe an undercover informant to tell us about this. So it's complicated. Whenever it's complicated, it means you can poke holes in it. There might be procedural problems. The police might have made a mistake along the way. In Canada and the U.S., you might have constitutional problems with respect to rights violations, for example. And on top of that, this is <clears throat> that I can think of in Canada. It's the only charge that imports, for the most part, what I'll call motive clause. So motive is, I think it's true in the U.S. and in Canada, it's really important to proving your case. Mm. But it's not necessary. Right. So in Canada, you have to prove you you committed the murder and you intended to do so, to put it simply. You don't have to show why. Showing why helps. It helps with, you know, I always think of it through the lens of like consonance or dissonance theory. Right. So you have a bunch of facts which would tend to suggest an outcome uh, and you have an outcome you want to get to. And the motive helps you tell that story to connect those two things. Mm-hmm. And so if you're a prosecutor, that story is great because it creates consonance between the story you want to tell and the facts that are available and the outcome you need. And we know that people like consonants and they like a good story. And so that helps lead you to the, the, the outcome. So motive is playing a role, but it's not fundamental to the charge in terrorism in Canada. Motive is built into what the crown has to prove. So they have to prove um, that not only did you commit the act, say on behalf of it or for the purpose of aiding a, terrorist group, but that you did so with a political, religious, or ideological motive. Well, that's really hard to prove why someone Mm. did something. So I I think that if you're a defense lawyer and you're looking at this, or plaintiff and you're looking at it, or defendant, sorry, and you're looking at it, you're probably saying, well, I've got more grounds upon which I can defend myself. This is going to be more complicated. Maybe I may as well go ahead with the defense. But as you say, the you know the long and the short of it is we've got a lot more cases going to trial, and and so that makes it look a little bit different than anything else really that's happening here. Now I think your second question, if I can get to that, was uh, was related to the conviction rate, mm. and so the conviction rate is more standard. It's at least if I, when I look at the conviction rate, it looks about like the conviction rate for your average other charge. So this is where we sort of say, well, if it was like murder, then it should look like murder um, in more ways than one, right? If we're sort of saying, you know, the, the gender makeup looks like murder, so maybe this is a charge that more fits murder. It, it, actually, our conviction rate would suggest it just sort of fits the Canadian conviction rate. The other thing to say there is it depends on sort of how you count this. So when, when we actually have a very high conviction rate when the cases go to trial. So I think we've had one stay, I want to say, after a guilty plea uh, because of entrapment, police entrapment, and, and another maybe one or two cases of, of not guilty. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, if it goes to trial, they're being found guilty. Um, mm-hmm. and, and even if they plead out, they're, they're pleading out, obviously, saying they're guilty. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but in that way, it's it's high or maybe even higher than you might expect. So we are actually doing a pretty good job prosecuting. Uh, the question, I guess, becomes 
what about all those other cases that, you know, the seven individuals that were against whom the charges were stayed in the Toronto 18, for example, is that, mm-hmm. are those prosecutions we maybe should, are we being too cautious? And that explains why we're doing so well when we get to trial. And if you're the prosecutor, uh, or is it because, is it just because we're doing pretty well and those were completely justified stays and or there's other reasons for not going ahead with the charges. You know, in some cases we have charges in absentia because individuals have gone off to Syria and we sort of know who they are. They're listed in the paper in some cases. In some cases we think they're probably dead, so we're never going to see anything. Yeah. Yeah. So Michael, um, in in closing, I I wonder if you could like talk about what kind of reception the paper has gotten and whether there's been a reaction of any kind on the part of Canadian law enforcement. I mean, for me, like the one of the many provocative findings or suggestions was that maybe there was a kind of lack of attention being paid preemptively to right-wing activities that would properly be characterized as terrorism. Has Have you seen any action on that front or any concern from the authorities to, um, to sort of think about whether that might be an issue? Yeah, we've, we've, and you don't want to credit the paper for this. I think there's a lot going on. The paper being the, the least of the factors that are driving the decision-making now, but you are seeing for the first time, at least that I can remember in the last little while authorities coming out and saying we have to revisit this so that's politicians coming out that's some of the security services coming out now having said that that's only really recently so one of the things as you allude to i I do mention in the paper is even if you go back three years there was quite the opposition to the proposition that it might be the case that we're we don't have a full clear picture of the national security threat, or even that we should be treating the, the both our security services and our national police force have statements from very high up from three or four years ago saying essentially that right-wing extremism is of course a problem, but it's a law enforcement problem, not a national security problem. And it's really the ideology is different and therefore we're going to view it as different from sort of your standard terrorism. I think that's starting to change. Having said that unofficially, you get, some people who say, yes, this, you know, this was self-evident and sort of obvious and just follow the budget numbers and, and look where, you know, the money was going in terms of investigations. You would have seen the same thing as what you're pointing out, but we're glad you've pointed it out and you know, hopefully build on it in Canada. And then you do hear sort of offline others grumbling about, um, you know, no, we were doing the right thing all along. Um, this is, you know, there's nothing to the the concern raised here that we're looking at the wrong thing. It's just, you know, bad luck or whatever is the better explanation for things. Um, but I think that's inevitable, uh, you know, even either the right or it was tunnel vision and people don't generally like to admit to tunnel vision. So uh, <laughs> you're probably not going to change those opinions, but I do think we're starting to see a change in Canada from at least, you know, I don't know what's happening at the ground level, but at least high up, you're seeing a change in tone and tenor from the public statements. And we're starting to talk about having a more holistic view of what terrorism could be. I think that's probably the next step for for me and my research and, and for others that I hope they're following on. I think I think you've sort of hit on what is probably the most important part here, which is that we need to take this more seriously and then start discussing 
why this is happening, when it might be justified, when it might not be, um, and how we can how we can sort of offer a course corrective if that is necessary, which I would tend to think it is. I think it's obvious from sort of the paper of my statements today. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for coming on the program, Michael. It's been a really a pleasure talking to you, and I learned a lot about uh, Canadian law today. Oh, good. Well, thank you so much for having me, Brian. It's a, I appreciate the podcast and the opportunity to speak with you today. I will